Our Father, it is with great joy that we remember the salvation that you have provided for us in your dear Son. It is a joy that one day will be unhindered, unbroken, growing only fuller with the passage of the time that we have in your presence in resurrected bodies free from sin within us, free from sin without us to tempt. It is a joy, however, that is here interrupted, faltering and stumbling because of our remaining sin. It is a joy that is often frustrated because of our unbelief and our failure to be all that we want to be and all that you made us to be in Christ. But it is with joy that we remember these promises and we anticipate their fulfillment, even as you have given us symbols to do just that, as in the Lord's table, that you have given to your church as a reminder of the sacrifice that has been made for us, of the hope that is promised to us, of the power that is provided for us by your Spirit through the new covenant, through the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and his ascension to your right hand. Well, now you stand, our Lord, to make intercession for us, and it is that which is the foundation of our confidence and of our hope and our certainty that all of these promises you have made will be fulfilled and we will experience them. And it is in that hope that we rejoice. And it is in that hope that we ask you to strengthen us this morning, both in the opening of your word and in the remembering of you and the table. And to that end, we pray for your grace in the name of the Lord Jesus, amen. Well, as you know, we are this morning going to remember the Lord's table. We remember the Lord's table uh, every other week. We do that eventually. We may even move to every week. Very often, many of you have celebrated that once a month. And at certain points in the history of the church, it was celebrated once a year. It was made to be a momentous occasion. And the Lord's Supper, like baptism, is, is one of two ordinances that the Lord has given to us as his people. Baptism pictures us being initiated into the people of God. The Lord's Supper pictures our ongoing fellowship with the Lord. And these symbols are central to our life and a reminder as a church of God and as a reminder of all that Christ is to us and for us. Uh, and many of us have grown up in churches, well certainly if you grew up in a Christian church, uh, that you took the Lord's Supper and that you understood or you saw baptisms being taking place. Some of you may have grown up in churches, I did anyway, uh, a Methodist church where baptism was through sprinkling. Of course, if you're Catholic, you see that, or if you grew up Presbyterian or in a covenantal church, then you saw the sprinkling of babies. And, and for the, by and large, the church really doesn't pay a whole lot of attention to these symbols. They're mere tradition in a lot of ways or uh, just what you do if you're a part of the church. But, but they are significant means and pictures and symbols that God has given to us to remember the wonders and the glory of the gospel. And throughout the history of the church, as you're well familiar, these have been symbols that have been fought over in terms of their meaning and of their application to the individual because of their significant representation of the gospel. Uh, so I want to take a little bit of time this morning to look at the Lord's Supper, just to consider it. It is a vast and wide topic because in the Lord's Supper and in these symbols that he has given to us is the whole of the gospel, is the whole of the eternal plan of God, is the whole of the picture of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and his work, his resurrection and his return of the kingdom and all of the glorious realities of our redemption. There's no way that we could cover all of that 
uh, in one message, indeed in, in a month of messages. But we are going to attempt to direct our eyes to it a bit more than we usually do this morning, looking at the Lord's Supper in light of, in a very broad sense, the New Covenant. The Lord's Supper in light of the New Covenant. And in order to do that, we're going to bounce around to a few different passages, and we're going to look at three broad headings. We'll spend most of the time on the uh, second and the third heading. Uh, But just, again, to set our minds as a reminder, to set our minds on the things above and as a reminder of what it is that we do every other week when we, well, now with COVID, open these packages and take out a tasteless wafer and some grape juice. But the significance reaches, of course, far beyond that. Well, let me begin simply by this, defining what the Lord's Supper is, defining what the Lord's Supper is. And that would be the first point. What is the Lord's Supper? The Lord's Supper is a memorial feast instituted by Jesus on his last night with the disciples. The last night, the night of his betrayal and just before his crucifixion. He gave it to the disciples as a means of proclaiming his death and resurrection on behalf of his people. He gave it to them and to us as it's passed down through the generations as a reminder of our salvation, of our redemption and the hope of the kingdom to come. That's what the Lord's Supper is. It's gone through various titles uh, in Scripture. It goes by various titles in Scripture. Uh, The use of the Lord's Supper we get from 1 Corinthians 11.20. It's referred to in Acts chapter 2 as the breaking of bread. They're almost certainly a reference to communion of the early church. It's called the Lord's Table in 1 Corinthians 11.21. And we call it communion from the Greek word that is translated as sharing in some of your translations in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It's a sharing in the body and the blood of the Lord. The word there is really the word that sometimes is translated fellowship and Uh, We get the idea of communion from that. It is referred to as a love feast in Jude chapter 12. They're reflecting the idea of the love of God's people for one another as a reflection for the love of God. Although there it's put in a pejorative sense because of the false teachers who had come in and polluted it. Uh, The term that is passed down through church history that we as Protestants tend to want to separate ourselves from is that it's called the Eucharist. Now, the Eucharist is from a Greek term which simply means thanksgiving. And that that is what the idea was essentially in the Eucharist. But because that term was essentially taken over by what developed into medieval Roman Catholic theology, Uh, some of us reject that because it reminds us too much of that system, and that's fine, but that was from pretty much the second century on what it was known as was the Eucharist. But we will stick with the Lord's Supper and the Lord's Table, which is much more familiar to us. And as I mentioned, it is essentially a sign and a meal given to the church as a reminder of Christ and the new covenant to freshly remember and to to experience by faith the realities and the wonders of the gospel, of the promises of God to us in Christ. And with that, let's go to, to the second point, the Lord's Supper and the New Covenant. The Lord's Supper and the New Covenant. You are familiar, we read the words of institution uh, every time that we take the Lord's Supper that Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 11, this is the new covenant in my blood, referring to the words of Jesus. He says in Matthew 26, we'll turn to some of these later, to his disciples, this is the covenant in my blood. 
So it is then a picture of a covenant and particularly of the new covenant. But that is a word that is in a concept even that's unfamiliar to some of us. What is a covenant? Uh, how do covenants function in scripture that makes the celebration of the new covenant significant? What is the new covenant and what is so new about the new covenant and why is that important to us? Uh, well, let's just broadly look at this and I'll just stay up front as I, I do sometimes that the idea of covenant is a, is a massive uh, topic in scripture. It is central to scripture and the unfolding of God's plans, his redemptive plans for his people. And it is an idea that we'll look at later down the road in a few weeks, several weeks actually, as we prepare our way to come into the book of Revelation as we'll consider covenant theology and so forth. But I want to look at it just very broadly uh, this morning. For those who are familiar with this topic, you'll realize there's much more that's not said than is said. But I want to give us at least a broad idea and an understanding of covenants and how they function in Scripture and, and why that's important for us to understand in terms of the Lord's table. So first of all, then, what is a covenant? What is a covenant? Well, a covenant is, could be simply defined as this. A binding agreement between two parties with obligations and regulations. A binding agreement between two parties with obligations and regulations. It includes such ideas as well as promises of blessing for matching the terms of the covenant and warnings of cursing or punishment for breaking the terms of the covenant. However, at the very heart of that is the idea of relationship is the idea of a relationship. A covenant is entering into a relationship between two parties. And again, as I mentioned earlier, this is central to the unfolding purposes of God. One said this, that the vehicles through which they are the vehicles through which God's kingdom purposes unfold. And that is certainly true. He has determined to unfold and unveil to us his purposes in Christ, his eternal purposes in Christ through covenants, through these promise relationships. Now, there are various kinds of covenants in Scripture. Let me just give you two broad categories. And uh, I'm, again, just going to mention this broadly here. There are what are known as unilateral covenants or unconditional covenants. And then there are bilateral covenants and conditional covenants. Now, you're like, what in the world is he talking about? A unilateral covenant is essentially this. It is, a, it is a promise that is made by God to man where the conditions of that covenant are completely put on God. In other words, that he is the one who obligates himself to fulfill that covenant apart from man. He makes it with man, but the certainty of its fulfillment is dependent completely upon God. He obligates himself for its fulfillment. Uh, Genesis, uh, Hebrews 6.13 says this, for when God, and he's speaking of God ratifying the promise that he made to Abraham in Genesis, uh, in Genesis 12. He ratifies it in Genesis 15, but he says this, the writer of Hebrews does, uh, in relation to God doing that. He says, for when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by none greater, he swore by himself. And if you remember Genesis 15, when God was ratifying the covenant that he had made and expanding a bit uh, on with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, uh, there were animals that were prepared by Abraham. They were split in two and God alone is the one who passed through the middle. And that was symbolizing essentially that God will, by virtue of his own nature and promise and holiness be the one who obligates himself to fulfill the promise of that covenant. 
A bilateral or conditional covenant is one, again, where God obligates man to fulfill certain conditions in order to realize the blessing of the covenant. We'll look at some of this more down the road, but let me give you just one passage. Exodus 19.5, this is Sinai, God establishing the Mosaic covenant. He says this, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. In other words, God is sovereignly establishing the covenant, but in order to realize the fulfillment of that covenant, the fruition of the covenant, there are obligations put, in this case, on the nation of Israel. They must be faithful. They must obey the stipulations. They must live their lives consistent with what God has given as his commands of the covenant. Now, does that make sense so far? We're good? All right. Well, let me give you just a few of the covenants. And again, I want to look at this just very broadly, and we're, we're going to bring all of this uh, home. It's important to understand this, however, because again, it is central to the way that God has unfolded his plans to us in the word of God. What are the covenants? What are some of the covenants that he made? The first is the Noahic covenant. The Noahic covenant. It's called the Noahic covenant because it was a covenant that God made with Noah. The Noahic covenant, of course, was found after the flood in Genesis 6 through 8. After God brought destruction on the world through the flood, he brought safely in the ark Noah and his family. And after the flood waters subsided and they were on land again and they came out of the ark, God made a covenant with Noah. And this is Genesis chapter 9. Now, just for time's sake, I'm not going to turn to all of these passages. We'll turn to some along the way. The, the covenant with Noah that God made was an unconditional covenant. There was nothing that God required of Noah in order for the fulfillment of this covenant. He simply made it with Noah and determined by his own promise that he would fulfill it. Actually, I'm going to turn there. Let me just remind you. He says in Genesis chapter 9, now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds and the cattle, the beasts of the earth with, uh, with you, of all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth. Verse 11, I establish my covenant with you and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood, neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. Now, what is the significance of this covenant? The significance of this covenant is essentially this. By making this promise to Noah and to all flesh and to everything that survived the flood uh, in the ark, God was providing stability to the earth in order to him to continue to fulfill the promise to redeem man. The promise that he made right after the fall, a promise that he made in an announcement of his judgment to Satan, namely that he will crush Satan on the head even though the seed of Satan will bruise him on the heel. But the reality of the flood reminds us that because of the fall of man, condemnation lies over all men. The heart of man is corrupt. The intent of our thoughts are only evil from our youth, from the very time we come out of the womb or are able to have any conscious thought. The depravity of our nature is made manifest through our lives and through our actions. And therefore, it is a demonstration that God rightly has judgment on all men. And the flood was the first demonstration of that. He destroyed all flesh off of the earth. And the heart of man has not changed after the flood. 
uh, is no different than it was before the flood. So he says in verse 21 of chapter 8, The Lord smelled the soothing aroma. It was a sacrifice uh, made by Noah. And the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, and I will never again destroy every li living thing as I have done. That is, every, he will never destroy every living thing as he has done by water. And again, by doing that, he provides the stability of humanity to flourish, the stability of the earth to continue to function as it does to sustain life. And in so doing, he has provided the conditions that are necessary in order for him to fulfill his promise of redemption that would come by subsequent covenants. What is in the sign that he gave to us is the rainbow. It is the rainbow. That is a sign that all men can see and bear witness to the reality of this promise that God made. What is the next covenant that he makes? He then makes a covenant with Abraham. And this is in Genesis chapter 12, as you're well familiar. He calls Abraham, and he calls Abraham to be the one through whom God will bind himself to make a, by promise to, through Abraham, make a great name and be a, provide a blessing for all of the nations of the earth. This covenant forms the foundation and the basis of all preceding covenants. Let me read it to you. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. In this covenant, God provided the promise of a people, of a nation, of, he provided a promise of a special relationship to God of all of those who came from Abraham. The nations are blessed or cursed in relation to their response or treatment of Abraham and of the people of Abraham. That will be the descendants of Abraham. And the blessing would extend to all of the nations. So while it is a special relationship with Abraham and his descendants, the fruit of that would be that all of the nations of the earth would one day experience blessing through God's fulfillment of this promise. The sign of this covenant, as you'll remember, as it was recorded in Genesis chapter 17, is circumcision. The sign of this covenant is circumcision. And the significance of this sign is that it showed visibly the solidarity of all of the descendants of Abraham with Abraham himself. And therefore, by being, uh, having uh, connection with Abraham, there is connection to the promise made to Abraham. It is then the sign of the covenant. It was central to the identification of a Jew. It was also later used as a metaphor by God to picture the cutting off of the sinful rebellion that's natural to the heart of man to prepare the heart to obey God in truth. So in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16, God gives this command, circumcise your heart, circumcise your heart. Remove the rebellion that is in your heart and become submissive, become obedient, become in line with the will of God as revealed in his word. But because God also promised later in Deuteronomy that he would circumcise their heart, it again served as a picture of the spiritual reality of the sinfulness of the nation, but of the promise of redemption that was given by God. That is the Abrahamic covenant. 
There is another covenant I'll mention just briefly. It is the priestly covenant. That's in Numbers chapter 25. It is an unconditional covenant. So the Noahic covenant is unconditional. God's going to fulfill it. The Abrahamic covenant is unconditional. God's going to fulfill it. The priestly covenant is unconditional. It's one that God obligates himself to fulfill. Uh, It was a promise, interestingly, made to one by the name of Phineas after his display of zeal for the holiness of God. We won't go back and recount that. But here's the promise that God made to him. That he would make to him a covenant of peace and a covenant of a perpetual priesthood. And this covenant actually extends all the way into the millennial kingdom. And is mentioned again in Ezekiel chapter 44 and other places as well. There's another covenant that was made and that is the Davidic covenant. And it again is now the fourth unconditional promise, unconditional covenant that God made to his people Israel. And that is mentioned in 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Let me just briefly remind you of it. David, after he had wanted to build a house for the Lord and made plans and really the whole of his life was making preparations for his son Solomon to build this temple, what would become the Solomonic temple. But if you'll remember the, the, situ, uh, the situation that David wanted to build a house for the Lord. He says, here I live in such luxury. I live in a house of cedar. I want to build a house for the Lord. And the prophet said, go ahead and do that. That's fine. The prophet Nathan. Uh, but then God went to Nathan and said, no, 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 no. That, that was not my plan. That is not what I said. David will not build a house for me. David is a man of war. He is a man of bloodshed. It will be his son after him who will build this house for me. But... God says, I'm going to do something. David, you're not going to build a house for me, but I am going to build a house for you. And the house that I build for you will be an enduring house. And so he says this. He says, now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture and from following the sheep to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off your enemies from before you. I will make you a great name if you should be an echo, a reminder of the very promise that he made to Abraham. This is an outflow of the promise to Abraham. He says, And I will make you a great name like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them, and they will live in their own place and not be disturbed again. Even from the day I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, he says, I will give you rest from all your enemies. And he will make it, and then he says this, and the Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. And when he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul. Verse 16, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. And there are two things going on here. In one sense, there is this promise that God will establish a house For David, a house that will endure forever, a family line, a line of descendants, a line of royal descendants that will eventuate into a single descendant who will be the fulfillment of this promise to David. In that line of secession, there will be those who come from David who are not the fulfillment, but a continuing reminder of the promise made to David, and they will be those who sin and need correction. 
But outside of all of those who will descend from him, who will fail, there will be one who will come who will never fail and who will provide the reality of the promise that was made to him. Now, interestingly, the word covenant is not used here in 2 Samuel, but it was clearly understood that way and had all of the elements. For example, and there are other places we could go, but Psalm 89.3 says this, I have made, this is God speaking, I have made a covenant with my chosen, I have sworn to David my servant. And in fact, so significant was their understanding of this covenant and this promise to David that it was a central message of the prophets as a means of hope and promise to the nation of Israel, even in their darkest days, even in their most rebellious days. There was the promise that God will bring forth the fruit of his promise to David. Let me give you just a couple of passages again. This is a A large topic. I'm going to give you some that you just are the most familiar with. In Isaiah chapter 9, we read this at Christmas, don't we? He says this. He says, A child will be born to us, a son will be given, and the government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Israel is going to experience judgment in the course of her history but this promise remains and the reality is that there will be a future son of David who will establish the throne of God on earth in righteousness and justice forever let me give you just one more passage you may be familiar with Ezekiel 37 you remember in Ezekiel as well as in the first part of Isaiah there is an emphasis on the judgment of God that is coming but in the midst of all this judgment there is yet this promise that remains alive And here is the heart of this promise. Verse 24 of Ezekiel 37. My servant David will be king over them and they will have one shepherd and they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them and they will live in the land that I give to Jacob in which your fathers lived. They will live on it and so forth. He says in verse 26, I will make a covenant of peace with them an everlasting covenant with them. He'll multiply them, set his sanctuary in their midst, and so on and so forth. In verse 28, and the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel and my sanctuary is in their midst forever. I would simply highlight this point. There was a promise, a covenant made to David that was the center, was the foundation of the hope of the promise of the prophets to Israel. Now there's a covenant that we skipped over that you might be wondering about. It's the big one, right? The covenant with Moses, which is called the Mosaic Covenant because it was made with Moses. It is the covenant that was made with Moses as the leader of the nation of Israel after God delivered them from the Egyptians through the Exodus, took them through uh, the Red Sea, brought them eventually to Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, and there he made a covenant with them. It was there that he established the law. It is there that the law was written, the law being essentially not only the requirements for Israel as the covenant people of God, but also the very foundation of God's right to make that covenant. And that's why scripture begins with Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The God who created all things is the God who will redeem his people. 
Now, this covenant with Moses, I mentioned last, because it is a conditional covenant. It is a conditional covenant. When God made this promise to Israel, the fulfillment and the enjoyment and the blessing of this covenant was dependent upon their obedience to it. God remembered his covenant with Abraham in delivering the nation of Israel once they had formed to be a nation under under Egypt. Let me give you just one passage here just to make that clear. Exodus chapter 6. You don't have to turn there. Let me just read it. Exodus chapter 6, verses 4 through 5. And this is where God is, is declaring that he is going to deliver his people based on his faithfulness to his promise. It is a sovereign act of God. He says, I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan. That's where a promise that God had made more specifically in Genesis 15. The land in which they sojourned. Furthermore, I have heard the groaning of the sons of Israel because of the Egyptians are holding them in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. I have remembered my covenant to Abraham. Therefore, I am going to deliver my people Israel. And so he did just that. And then again, he took them to Mount Sinai where he gave them the law. And this served then, this covenant through Moses, as a means of regulating God's covenant relationship with his people. He had already entered into relationship with his people. It didn't establish his relationship. That's what I just read. That was already established with Abraham. This was a covenant meant to regulate, to give out the terms of fellowship with God, to give out the means by which God may dwell in their midst and be a blessing to them. Therefore, it was the establishment in that case of the tabernacle, of the priesthood, of the sacrifices. And it is how they maintained fellowship with God. But in order to maintain this fellowship, it required their obedience. We won't turn there. Deuteronomy 28 through 29 were the terms of this or the the warnings of this condition. He says, there will be blessing when you walk in my ways, when you walk according to my word, when you are faithful, when you demonstrate that you love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Blessing will come to you. However... If you do not do those things, then there will be cursing, and the list of cursings is much longer. And ultimately, the fulfillment of those curses would be realized in the exile of Israel, the northern tribes, to Assyria, the southern tribes, to Babylon, and the destruction of Jerusalem in the most horrific possible way. And that was because of their disobedience. And so the enjoyment of that covenant required their obedience and the sign of this covenant the sign of this covenant of the mosaic covenant was in addition to the presence of the tabernacle and the priesthood and the sacrifices it was the sabbath the sabbath was the sign of this covenant this ongoing relationship with god as a matter of fact this is mentioned in exodus 31 let me just read it to you verses 16 through 17 So the sons of Israel shall observe the Sabbath to celebrate the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the sons of Israel, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, but on the seventh day he ceased from labor and was refreshed. And so Israel's observance of the Sabbath was a picture for all to see of their faith in the God who entered into covenant with them, of their trust in this God, of their fidelity to this God, of their obedience to this God. The Sabbath marked them out as the people of God. And it also 
reminded them of the promise, a promise of future rest. But as I noted, it was conditional in order for them to realize this rest. It was conditional in order for them to realize this blessing. At the very heart of this covenant was the requirement of them to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, which is something they never did. In fact, even the most righteous of Israel never did that. We well remember, we often uh, remind ourselves of Isaiah, one of the most righteous prophets in Israel at the time, who before God could only confess his sin. David, the most righteous king, a man after God's own heart, nonetheless committed the most memorable sins of murder and adultery with Bathsheba and killing her husband Uriah. In other words, even the best of Israel were unable to ultimately meet the conditions of the covenant because of the reality of sin. And this gets us a little closer to the significance of the new covenant. As a matter of fact, as the old covenant is referred to in the New Testament, that is one of the primary functions of the old covenant was to demonstrate to God's own people and therefore to the world that man cannot meet the conditions required for fellowship with God. In fact, the law ultimately served this purpose, to reveal sin, to reveal sin. And that, of course, is one of the errors of the nation of Israel, is that they had taken the intent of the law, and rather than being humbled and experiencing its humble effects, creating them a humble heart of faith to anticipate God's provision of salvation, they essentially made the law God's means for their own self-salvation. That's why Paul would say of them in Romans chapter 10, seeking to establish a righteousness of their own through the law, that is, they have rejected the righteousness of God that is in Christ. And so that was the problem, but that was never the intent of the law. Again, we're not going to bounce around and, and trace that. But Galatians chapter 3, it was a tutor to lead them to Christ. It was a means of shutting up all men under sin. Romans chapter 3, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The righteousness of God was never meant to be a realization for his people through the law. But the righteousness of God, as he says in Romans, would come apart from the law. It would be a righteousness that God provided in Christ. But the point here is simply to make that I'm making is that there is this new this covenant of Moses which was this governing covenant in the life of the nation of Israel of how they were relate to God but what it exposed is they could never do it in their own strength so if we were to find a unifying theme in all of these covenants one it is this God's gracious purpose to redeem a fallen humanity to rule over them and provide them the true leadership that could only ultimately come from God himself in righteousness and justice it is, in fact, and this I will just mention really by way of very brief comment. All of these covenants are an outflow of a covenant that was made within the Godhead before the creation of anything, sometimes referred to as the covenant of redemption. And we have an example of this just in two passages. We're well familiar with Ephesians chapter 3, that we were chosen in Christ when? before the foundation of the world not after the fall but before God created anything he had determined that the son of God would be flesh accomplish redemption and in him he would call out a people to himself the same is mentioned in 2 Timothy 1 9 through 10 and the eternal purposes of God by grace but that being said 
there were two key signs that God gave to Israel as ongoing reminders of his covenant and of redemption. And those were circumcision and Passover. Those were two of the, the heart signs, if you will, that God gave to his people. Circumcision, we already mentioned, was identification, a reminder of the promise that God made to Abraham that he would bless his people, that they would be his people, that through them a blessing would come to the world. And circumcision was a reminder. That was at the very heart of Israelite and old covenant identity was circumcision. But the second was this. It was the Passover meal that attended God's delivering acts from Egypt. The Passover was a central part of the life of the nation of Israel. Now, there were other feasts. There were the Feast of Unleavened Bread that was associated with the Passover. There was the Feast of First Fruits, the First of Weeks, the Feast of Booze, and so forth. There were other feasts, but it was this feast of the Passover and this feast of the unleavened bread that attended it that really formed the heart of, God's, uh, of Israel's remembrance of God's deliverance of them. Let me just briefly consider then the Passover. And again, it's very, very, very brief. But let me remind you of a few key points because this is going to become central to our understanding of the Lord's table. If you'll remember in Exodus chapter 12 is where God established the Passover meal just before he was to pass through the land of Egypt, killing all of the firstborn. He established the Passover meal to his people. Let me just make a few general observations here. Some of the basic characteristics of the meal. One, it was a family meal. They were to sacrifice the lamb and to go through the prescribed means of both killing it, putting its blood on the doorposts, and eating it, each household, each household, they did it as a community in essence, as a household, as the people of God. It was an exclusive meal. In other words, it was given to Israel. It was what Israel was given to set them apart from the people of Egypt. And indeed, really, even within Israel, the faithful in Israel, because even if an Israelite didn't do this, he was dead too, along with all of the Egyptians. So it was an exclusive meal. It was to demonstrate that Israel was God's people. If you'll remember through the plagues, God had already accentuated that point at other times where the plague affected the surrounding areas, but it did not affect the land of Goshen and the land of where God's people were. It was an exclusive meal, and it was an ongoing meal. They were to continually remember this. In verse 24, you shall observe this event as an ordinance for you and your children forever. You're always to remember the deliverance that God gave to you. Now, what was the overall purpose of the meal? It was a reminder and a celebration of God's deliverance. As a matter of fact, he says that in verse 14. It'll be a memorial to you. You shall celebrate it through all your generations. Again, as a remembrance of what God had done. And what were they to remember? Well, let me just mention a few points. They were to remember that God is faithful to his covenant and their deliverance was a sovereign act of God. If you remember that he said to them, even in Deuteronomy, I did not choose you because you were great among the nations. I chose you and I set my love on you merely to demonstrate his, the freedom of his sovereign choice to reveal his grace to that nation because of his promise to Abraham. Abraham himself, if you remember though, a model of our faith, the father of our faith, was himself called out of idolatry, Joshua 24, called out of wickedness to be the recipient of God's grace. So it was a sovereign act of God. 
That should be very humbling to his people. It was deliverance from affliction. They were a people in bondage. They were a people under slavery. They were a people groaning under the weight of the burdens that were put on them. They were an afflicted people and therefore in their groaning, they cried out to God for deliverance and God brought them deliverance from their affliction. As a matter of fact, that was pictured in the bitter herbs that were to be a part of the Passover meal. It was a deliverance from judgment. They were to remember that God delivered them from judgment. He said in verse 11, that, or verse 12, I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and I will strike down all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. How was Israel then spared from this? Because Israel was as wicked as the Egyptians were by obeying what God gave as the sign. And that's the third characteristic of it, or purpose of it, that they would be delivered by blood. They would be delivered by blood. It was through the sacrifice of the animal whose blood uh, was put on the, the post of their house, and it was in the angel of the Lord who was bringing the destruction would see that blood and then pass over Israel. But it was a reminder that you are as guilty as the Egyptians but I've provided a sacrifice. I've provided deliverance. You will not suffer what they suffer because I am gracious to you and faithful to my covenant. But again, with all of the glory and the promises and the reminders of the covenant, they were never fully realized by God's people because of their sin. And so again, it was the hope and the promise of the prophets that one day, one day, even though Israel was perpetually failing to follow through and live up to the obligations put on them, God would provide deliverance. And that was the promise. And so listen to the promise. And it was the promise then of the new covenant. It was the promise of the new covenant. And so he says in Jeremiah 31, verse 31, Behold, and again, if you'll remember, as with all of the major prophets, there is an emphasis, particularly on the first part, with the judgment of God. They all are recounting both the message that God sent to his people before the exile, warning them. They account for the exile, the judgment of God, but also reminding them of a future promise. But here's the promise. Here's the promise. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord, but this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, I will put my law within them and on their heart, I will write it and I will be their God and they will be my people. They will not teach again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying, know the Lord for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. Now remember the significance and the weight of hearing these words from God. It is the weight of a people who felt the coming judgment upon them. A judgment that they would not escape. A judgment that they were perpetually finding themselves under because of their disobedience as a nation. And God is declaring them, I made a covenant with you. You have broken my covenant, but there is a covenant that I will make. That I will essentially 
fulfill myself and guarantee that you will experience the fruit of it. It certainly can't be that you're going to experience the fruit of it because of what is in you, because you as my people sin continually. You stray like sheep. But I will fulfill this covenant, and the promise does still remain. Now, with that, let's look briefly here at the Lord's Supper then in the church. So that's sort of the ending note in the Old Covenant, or the, the Old Testament and the Old Covenant of the people of Israel. And that brings us then into the fulfillment of God's promise. And this is the Lord's Supper in the church. These covenants and signs then find their fulfillment and meaning in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is, as will be revealed, the very substance of the new covenant. Now, before we even look at that, what are then the essential elements of the new covenant? What are the essential elements of the new covenant? Let me give you at least three as they're related to Christ. First is that God will fulfill all of the obligations of the covenant to bring about its blessings and its reality. God will fulfill all of the obligations of righteousness and justice. Number two, that he will provide then the final sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. He will provide forgiveness of sins and that forgiveness will be realized by everyone who is in the new covenant. Third, this new covenant will be attended with the presence and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And that he mentions even more specifically in Ezekiel chapter 36. That the Spirit will come. The Spirit will write the laws of God on the hearts of his people. The Spirit will take the heart of stone and make it the heart of flesh. The Spirit will cause them to walk in his ways. He says this, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances and you'll live in the land and so forth. I will do this and I will do this by my spirit. And just as a little footnote here, before that, just a few verses earlier in chapter 36, he said to them, I'm not doing this, Israel, for your sake, for you are a stubborn and rebellious and disobedient people. I'm doing this for my sake and I'm doing this for my name so that my name will be honored among the nations. But I'm going to do it. But I am going to do it because I am faithful. And I want you to know my name and I want the nations to know my name, which is again a key theme in the book of Ezekiel. That he would be known, that you would know that I am the Lord. Now one way that that's neatly summarized, again a huge topic, but let me just give you this. In Galatians chapter 4, after talking about the intent of the law, the futility of the law as a means of being righteous before God, he says this. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, under the law's obligations, under the law's requirements, under the same stipulations and commandments that you are under, this son would be born under. But where you failed, he would not. He would be born under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons, which is ultimately hinted at even in the Davidic covenant. Because you are sons, God has sent forth his spirit of his son into the heart, our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, an heir through God. That was the promise. And it was a promise that was realized in Christ. And with this realization then, the old covenant signs of the circumcision and Passover are replaced and reinstituted with new signs of the covenant. And what are they? 
The sign of circumcision is replaced with the sign of baptism, which is a discussion in itself, but it is baptism. The sign of the Passover was reinstituted as the Lord's Supper and reshaped. That's why we spent time on it. It is the Passover meal, the remembrance of God's deliverance of his people sovereignly from judgment, exclusively according to his electing purposes that he delivered his people. And so that is ultimately then a meal that is taken over and is what we celebrate this morning with all the intent and purpose and meaning of the Lord's sacrifice on our behalf. It's referred to the Lord's Passover the Passover of the Lord in 1 Corinthians 5, 7 explicitly. But where it is instituted and the transference is made is first in the Gospels, as would be expected by the Lord himself. Let me just turn to one passage. It's in each of the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26 records uh, in the book of Matthew his transferring this to us. And so let's just consider it. Now, before we even mention that, remember, and then this will help you hopefully to see the significance of understanding these covenants, at least generally and broadly. How does Matthew begin his gospel? He begins it with these words. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The son of David, the son of Abraham. Those are the covenants. He is the promised one of Abraham. He is the promised one of David. He is the one whom you have been waiting for, the Messiah, the anointed one, the one who would bring the promises of redemption to his people. He would say later in Matthew, it's for the forgiveness of sin. It was Christ himself who would say he came to be a ransom for the many. He is the fulfillment. He is the promise. He is the one you've been waiting for. Now, with that said, in the remainder of our time, before we come to the Lord's Tabor, let me give you just at least five characteristics then of the new covenant secured in Christ that are pictured for us in the supper. Five characteristics. And, and I wish we could spend more time, but I don't want this to be two messages. And next week, we are going to actually have a baptism service. And uh, so I want to save what we're going to say there for that. But let me just give these to you. And, and I'm sorry they're so brief, but one is this. It is a reminder to us when we come to the Lord's table of the cost of our redemption. The cost of our redemption. Not the cost to ourselves, although it does require us to deny ourselves to exchange our life for his. But that doesn't secure for us anything. It merely is the demonstration of our reception of the promise. The cost, no, came at the price that God paid himself. Not the cost to ourselves, but the, God that took, the cost that God took upon himself through the incarnation of the Son of God who took on flesh to give his body and to spill his blood for us. And so Jesus said in verse 26 of Matthew 26, while they were eating, Jesus took some bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and he said, take, eat, this is my body. Luke adds, this is my body, which is given for you. Hebrews said, there was a body prepared for me that in his perfect obedience to the will of God would be the body that would be the final offering and sacrifice for his people, the thing that blooded bulls and goats could never do. God would do through the offering of a sacrifice he prepared himself, and that was the body of Jesus. He says, do this, because this is the body that is given for you in remembrance of me. 
The bread here would be the unleavened bread that pictured the nourishment for the Israelites during their exodus from Egypt. It represented as well a part of the affliction they endured, the haste in which they had to leave. Within the Passover meal, this is often argued to be the bread of affliction, which again portrayed their suffering and God's deliverance of them from, of them from their suffering. It came at great cost, came at the humility of the Son of God, even to become flesh. We've considered this and mentioned it in the last few weeks. Even as we looked at the giving, though he was rich, he became for our sakes poor, that we through his poverty might ourselves become rich with all the fullness of the blessings of the grace of God and all the spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ Jesus. It came through his humility that though he existed in the form of God, he took on the form of man, of a slave, and was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. It was the cost of the Son of God that he paid, not only in his humiliation, not only in his taking on a body that it may be given up to us, ultimately to be raised again, but to be laid down as a sacrifice. He makes that part out when he says, also when he gave them the cup, he gave thanks and he said, drink from it all of you for this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The covenant here is the new covenant. The covenant of promise, the covenant of anticipation, the covenant that is now a reality. And it's gonna be a reality because of the blood that will be poured out for it for your forgiveness and it will be my blood, he's telling them, my death, my suffering. This is likely the third cup of the Passover meal, the cup of blessing, mentioned in 1 Corinthians 10, 16, which came after the resuscitation, recitation, excuse me, of God's deliverance of his people from Egypt. It included a blessing and a benediction was given to thank God for this blessing. It's very possibly it was that covenant cup. It's the blood of the covenant, he said, however. It is a covenant that would be secured through his blood. And just as a remembrance here, all of the covenants of God were sealed through the blood of animals, except for the covenant of David. Noah, you'll remember, God, Noah after, offered a sacrifice. Abraham ratified the, the covenant by slaughtering the animals through which God passed down the middle. The, Moses, the, the covenant with Moses, the old covenant, was ratified with blood. The writer of Hebrews says we may... Say then, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. As a matter of fact, Exodus 24 says this, Then he took the book of the covenant, he read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. So they intended. Verse 8, So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words. It was ratified by blood, and ultimately it was through the annual observance of the Day of Atonement, where God provided a sacrifice for the sins of his people and pictured the removal of those sins from their presence by the goat that was set off and allowed to go and wander into the wilderness. It is a cost when we come to the table. It is a reminder of the cost of redemption, and that cost was at God's own cost, and it displayed his great love for us. So Paul said, he lives by faith in the Son of God who loved him and gave himself up for him. 
It is the love of God, the love of God that he bestowed on us that would take on the penalty for our sin. It is a picture then as well of the reality of our redemption. He says it is for the forgiveness of sins. The table reminds us of this when we come, that Jesus actually accomplished all that was necessary for our salvation and reconciliation to God. Nothing remains. The table reminds us every time that we take it, we should have resounding in our ears those last words of Jesus on the cross, it is is finished it is finished nothing remains there's no more sacrifice to be offered there's no more obligation to be met everything has been done in Christ and this is crucial the price and penalty for our sins has been paid in full this means that every sin you have committed in the past every sin you will commit in the future and every sin that you are right now this very morning this very day struggling and fighting with to put to death failing stumbling confessing being picked back up is a sin that you have already been forgiven for you've already been forgiven your relationship may be restored but there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus it's done it's finished. When we come to the Lord's table, we should be reminded of this, that not only has its penalty been removed, but the controlling power of sin has been broken. And again, though you fight, though you fail, though you stumble, you have, by the finished work of Christ, been set free. You're free. It's done. You're free to walk in righteousness. You're free to walk in obedience to God, something that you could never do apart from salvation. You were a slave to sin. Now you are a slave to righteousness and God has accomplished this and the table reminds us of it. The table reminds us of this and it's necessary because in our battle with sin, we need to have rules and structures in place but law and rules never sanctify, never, ever, ever, ever. What sanctifies and gives us power to put sin to death is the gospel. You want to have power to, over your sin? You want to have power to continue on in the fight for sanctification that sometimes we do so poorly in? It is to remember this, your sins have been atoned for. The payment has been made. That doesn't give you a comfort in your sin. It gives you renewed strength to fight it, to get back up and to resist it and to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and to make no provision for the flesh. When you come to the table, it is a reminder that your sins have been forgiven if you know Christ. The power of it is broken. You have no condemnation from God, only his promises and his love. That's it. The table reminds us. It reminds us of the fruit of redemption. That we have been born again. That was the promise of Ezekiel. It was the promise that Jesus reminded Nicodemus of. You must be born again to be in the kingdom. And everybody in the kingdom is born again. Has experienced the regenerating power of God. It means then that we have received the promise of the Spirit and we're in union with Christ. We have been baptized by the Spirit, which was the promise that Jesus repeatedly and significantly reminded his disciples of even after his resurrection before the coming of the Spirit in Acts chapter 2. He says you are to wait until you receive the promise from on high. It means we have been baptized by the Spirit into the body. We are in union with Christ, and in union with Christ, we have forever the foundation of his righteousness and his life as our life. Listen to this. Even, for even as the body is one and has many members, all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink by one spirit. We're reminded of that. 
We're reminded then of the presence of God through the Spirit among us. We are the temple, as it were, of the living God. Let me note it fourth, the promise of our redemption. The fruit of our redemption, the promise of our redemption. When we take the table, we are given a symbol that is meant to remind us of our collective hope in the kingdom of God. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples, I will not drink of the fruit of this vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And Paul reminds us that we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is our central hope as the people of God, that God has by virtue of the new covenant, by virtue of the coming and the accomplishment of the work of the person of Christ, all of his redemptive accomplishments, we have the certainty of being with him in his kingdom forever. We wait for his son, Paul says in Colossians or 1 Thessalonians 1.10. We wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. And it is a time when we will be in his presence forever. If you remember, he reminded his disciples in John 14, if I go, I will come again. And receive you to myself. If it were not so, I would have told you. But as it is, it is true. But now I go, I prepare many dwelling places for you in my Father's house, in his presence. And he will come and receive us again and take us there. And not merely in spirit, in some ethereal state of, of, of nothingness or some vague idea of just floating around, but he will ultimately take us there and has prepared this place for us in resurrected bodies that will be without sin. And so when we take the Lord's table, we're reminded of the promise of the resurrection, that we will be conformed to the body of his glory by the exertion of his own power in Philippians 3.20. That we will be conformed to his body in perfect holiness, his resurrection body in perfect power and glory and righteousness in 1 John chapter 3. And as we think on those things, we purify ourselves. So as we come to the table and remember it, it is meant to be a purifying experience of reminding us of our future resurrection, our conformity to the body of the glory of Jesus Christ. And ultimately to tell us and remind us of the future intimacy that we will have with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth where he comes and he dwells among men, his redeemed forever, forever. And in that great picture of intimacy and belonging we will have a name on our foreheads each one of us that marks our belonging to Christ and so we are to come to the table filled with hope we don't come to the table as believers in Jesus Christ with any worthiness of ourselves sometimes people say well I'm just you know I don't know if I should take it I've got sin well of course you have sin the issue is not that you come to the table without sin or you'd never take it the issue is that you come to the table in faith in Christ. You come to the table with no known sin that is unrepentant. You come to the table with no sin that you have made peace with, that you're not willing to fight when you leave out of these doors to pursue holiness. But it is the table itself that is a reminder to encourage us on in that battle and in that fight. And remember, we do it by the grace of God alone. We do it in his strength. We do it by his might. We do it because of his spirit dwelling in us. We do it because of his promises I've had in my mind this week that song uh, repeatedly, he will hold us fast. He holds us. He holds us. And we're reminded of this in the table. So as you prepare your heart and the men come forward and we take these elements, spend some time with the Lord thanking him for his grace. If there's any sin, 
in your life that you're battling with, confess that to him and ask him for the fresh strength again to fight it and to grow into holiness. And as you take a minute, a few minutes, or let me pray and then the men will pass out those elements and then you can take a few minutes. Father, thank you for the promises of grace. God, we recognize ourselves as unworthy, but our worthiness is in Christ. We, of ourselves, have the principle of sin remaining in us, but Christ, you have atoned for that sin. We long for that day to be with you forever with no sin, perfect joy, perfect righteousness, perfect love. Encourage our hearts to that end and to live consistent with our citizenship in the kingdom and with the promises of the new covenant. In your name, Jesus, amen. The words of institution that we are well familiar with from the pen of the Apostle Paul. 
That though we are familiar, I hope that we never tire and lose the wonder of them. They are the words that he said he received from the Lord in 1 Corinthians 11, and that he's delivered to you, that is the Corinthian church, and to us by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as it's recorded in the Word of God. That the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed by Judas, according to the plan of God, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, that is the bread, and he said, this is my body, which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. Let's remember the Lord together. And in that same meal, after the supper, he says he took the cup and he reminded them and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. It represents the new covenant. It, of course, was a cup with wine. It was a symbol. And he said to them, do this, because every time you do this, every time you drink it in remembrance of me, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. We are declaring his victory over sin. We are declaring our participation in his inheritance. We are declaring and affirming every promise that was made to us are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. So as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. Let's drink together. Let me close this with a benediction. And it is this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there's no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for a husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men and he will dwell among them and they shall be his people and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. And then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of water without cost. And he who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. That is the word of the Lord. May he bless it to our hearts. Amen. And we'll see you next week.